We have given to God our praise, our singing. We have given to God our offering. And now it is time for us to hear from God and to worship God through the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word. So if you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. The book of Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 25. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Remember my affliction in my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in God, the Spirit. We believe in the power of the Spirit to come and to move amongst us, to minister to hearts, to comfort the afflicted, to bring joy to those who are suffering. We believe in the Holy Spirit who can turn faith into sight and give us beauty for ashes and a garment of praise for our heaviness. So Lord, won't you come this morning? Won't you minister to us through your word? We pray in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. On October 20th, 1828, a man named Horatio G. Spafford was born in North Troy, New York. It was said of him that throughout his life, Spafford was a man of God, a man deeply devoted to following Christ and to living according to his word. Spafford eventually became a successful and wealthy Christian lawyer. He and his family including his wife, four daughters, and one son, settled in Chicago, Illinois, where he practiced law. In 1871, Spafford grieved the death of his son at the tender age of four years old. That same year, the great fire of Chicago broke out and consumed much of Spafford's real estate property 
devastated his wealth, and sent him into financial ruin. Two years later, in 1873, as he was still picking up the pieces of his life, he planned a trip to Europe for himself and his family. They were seeking to escape, to get away from all of the craziness which had consumed them. However, Spafford was held up with some business in Chicago. And so he sent his wife and daughters on ahead of him to sail to England on the SS Ville du Havre, expecting to see them again in just a few days' time. On October, on November 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship carrying Spafford's wife and daughters collided with an English vessel and sank in a matter of minutes. When the survivors had been rescued off the coast of Wales, Spafford's wife sent him a telegram with the words, saved alone. All four of Spafford's daughters had drowned in the accident. Spafford immediately got on a ship to see his wife in Great Britain. The ship took the exact same route as the one carrying his wife and kids. And as he passed by the exact location where his daughters had drowned, grieving over a lost fortune, grieving over a lost son, grieving over four lost daughters, Spafford took a pen in his hand and he wrote these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. God met Horatio G. Spafford with the deepest peace to meet the deepest sorrow. In his greatest affliction, Spafford knew the presence of God with a nearness unlike any other until that very moment. It may seem odd to think that God draws closest to believers in their times of greatest sorrow, but it really isn't odd when you stop to think about it. I have never heard a Christian ever say to me, my times of greatest intimacy with the Lord have been times of ease and prosperity. I've never heard that. I've always heard the opposite. My times of greatest intimacy with the Lord have been the times of my darkest hour of suffering and trial. Those who have been Christians long enough know the truth of the words of Samuel Rutherford when he was put into the cellars of affliction the great king keeps his finest wine there, not in the courtyard where the sun shines. Christians know the fact of what Charles Spurgeon said, that they who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Suffering in the Bible is often God's chosen method of revealing himself to his saints. God sovereignly and graciously uses the means of suffering to meet those who wait for him. The prophet Jeremiah was no stranger to suffering. 
and he was no stranger to the grace of God. His most famous nickname is the Weeping Prophet. Jeremiah was called by God in 627 BC as a teenager, somewhere between the ages of 13 and 19 years old. He was called as a youth, called by God, called to preach a message of judgment upon an entire nation, his own nation. That is no small calling. But Jeremiah did preach that message faithfully for 42 years, spanning the reign of five kings in the nation of Judah. Jeremiah preached 42 years and 52 chapters worth of judgment, calling for repentance, and he ended up with only one convert. Why all the negativity, Jeremiah? Why this message of judgment? Why don't you just lighten up? Jeremiah preached this message because it was God's message. He proclaimed this message of judgment because it was the message that God had given to him. God was about to judge his people using the nation of Babylon. And in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, fulfilled the word of the prophet Jeremiah. Nebuchadnezzar came and he destroyed the temple of God. He demolished the palace of the king. He burned the city of Jerusalem. And he deported the entire nation of Judah. And as the prophet looks out upon the ransacked, demolished, burning city of Jerusalem, he weeps. He grieves. He laments. And he, like Horatio G. Spafford, writes a song. He writes a song in the form of an ancient Jewish funeral dirge. He writes a funeral song, an elegy, a hymn meant to be sung at a funeral. And this song is known to us as the Book of Lamentations. Lamentations is a poem filled with laments of the weeping prophet over the city of Jerusalem. But in the midst of his greatest affliction, Jeremiah reminds himself and us of how to rightly respond to suffering. In the process of weeping over his affliction, God meets Jeremiah and teaches him a profound lesson in the school of suffering. And so in our passage this morning, I would like us to see four ways to meet God in the midst of affliction. Four ways to meet God in the midst of your affliction. First, pray to remember the sovereignty of God. Verses 19 through 20. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Before verse 19, Jeremiah has reached perhaps his lowest point in the entirety of the book. In the preceding verses, verses 17 and 18, Jeremiah says, My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. 
Jeremiah has hit rock bottom. This is the deepest of pits. This is the lowest of lows. He is in utter despair. But this is where God meets him. The light shines brightest in the darkest moments. At the end of verse 18, Jeremiah utters the word, Lord, Lord. He utters the name of God. And this is the first time that the name of God appears in all of chapter 3. And it's almost as if recalling the name of God causes Jeremiah to stop in his tracks, to stop and to think, to pause and to ponder, and to offer a prayer. So he begins to pray in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering. Now some of your Bibles may say, I remember my affliction, but that's not the idea in the Hebrew. The word remember in Hebrew is an imperative. It is a command. It is addressed to someone who is listening. Someone who can hear the prophet in his loneliness. And that someone is God himself. And that someone is the Lord. There is no one left in the decimated city to listen to him. Jeremiah is found alone, praying to his God. And we get the chance to look over his shoulder and listen to the hushed tones of the weeping prophet on his knees before the Lord. Jeremiah asks God, he beseeches God to remember four things. He asks the Lord to recall his affliction. He says, don't forget my sufferings, Lord. Remember me. He prays that God will remember his wandering, literally his homelessness. Now that Jerusalem has been reduced to rubble, Jeremiah literally does not have a place to live. He is walking around, straying about the city, looking for a place to stay. He has lost his home. Then Jeremiah prays that God would remember the wormwood and bitterness. Because of devastation, all the crops, all the animals, all the grain is gone. There's no meat, there's no vegetables, there's no bread, there's no dessert, there's nothing. He eats wormwood and bitterness, referring to the bitter-tasting herbs and shrubs used for medicinal purposes. Edible, yes, but extremely bitter to the taste. And I have no doubt this bitterness is reflected in the soul of Jeremiah as he prays. So this is what he prays. Remember these four things, O Lord. But it is very important to note that these four things in verse 19 are not the first time they appear in this chapter. Actually, they are repetitions. In verse 19, Jeremiah asked God to remember his affliction. But look at chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. I have seen affliction because of God's wrath. In verse 19, Jeremiah asked God to remember his wandering. But look at 3 verse 2. He, God, has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. God has caused my wandering. 
In verse 19, Jeremiah asked God to remember his wormwood and bitterness. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. What do you notice about all of these verses? In all of these verses, God is the active agent. God is the one who brought about affliction. God is the one who caused wandering. God is the one who gave him wormwood and bitterness. So Jeremiah prays to God to remember these things, yet it is God who brought about these things. In his prayer, Jeremiah says, Lord, in my suffering, I acknowledge that you are the one who brought this about. I acknowledge that you are in control. I know that you are in control. I trust that you are in control. But in your sovereignty, remember my suffering, O Lord. You see, Jeremiah has not forgotten the providence of God in suffering. No, he remembers the sovereignty of God in his prayers. He is not praying to a God that has lost control. He is praying to a God who is in complete control. Brethren, we need a theology of suffering that doesn't remove the sovereignty of God. We need a theology of suffering that honors the sovereignty of God. So what can we learn from the fact that Jeremiah knew that God was doing this to him, yet he was also praying for God's compassion. We can learn that God sometimes puts his people into the furnace of affliction in order to awaken within them a spirit of prayer. God, the great architect of our lives, designs our suffering to snap us out of our prayerless stupors. Don't take it from me. Don't take my word for it. Zechariah 13.9. God says, And I will bring the third part, the faithful remnant, through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And then what, Lord? Then they will call on my name, and I will answer them. God brings his faithful children through the refining fires of suffering to cultivate within them a heart that calls upon the name of the Lord. John Calvin says this, It is therefore necessary that we should be subject from first to last to the scourges of God in order that we may from the heart call on him. For our hearts are enfeebled by prosperity, so that we cannot make the effort to pray. Philip Lengthen said, where there are no cares, there will generally be no prayers. You see, brethren, when we go through suffering, Sometimes we say, oh, I'm so frustrated. I can't do anything about this. All I can do 
is pray. And you know what? You would be right. Sometimes all you can do is pray. And that is not a bad place to be. In fact, I dare say, that is exactly where God wants you to be. He wants you to be fully reliant upon his grace and mercy, calling upon the name of the Lord so that he can answer you. Prayer is not the least you can do. Prayer is the most you can do. Besides the word of God, prayer is the most powerful weapon in our arsenal. Don't do the opposite of Jeremiah. When we suffer, sometimes our first instinct is to stop praying because we try to fix everything ourselves. Don't do that. Beloved, let us just stop messing around and let's just covenant here together this morning to pray when we suffer. Let's just all agree here this morning that when we suffer, and we will suffer, we will go to our knees. We will run to our closets. We will call upon the name of the Lord so that he can answer us. Remember the sovereignty of God in your suffering and pray to your sovereign God in your suffering. Secondly, remind yourself of the faithful mercy of God. Verses 21 through 23. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. As Jeremiah prays for the mercy of God in the midst of his hopelessness, he finds hope. He finds his hope in God. He says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Jeremiah battles his suffering by recalling to mind the truth of God. He recalls to mind the realities of God. He recalls to mind God himself. He thinks on God. He fights affliction with God. And we do well to do the same. While Kaiser says, in the face of the direst of adversities, Israel and we are offered hope. It is not a word about answers to the problem of evil, not a word about circumstances or men or movements. It is not a word about systems of political or even theological belief. It is simply a word about our Lord. He is faithful. He is love. He is gracious. He is full of compassion. Brothers and sisters, the attributes of God don't change when you're suffering. God is still the same. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's not like when you start suffering, all of a sudden, God has changed. No. God is still gracious. God is still loving. God is still sovereign. God is still faithful. God is still full of compassion. Jeremiah doesn't put his hope in circumstances or in things getting better. He doesn't put his hope in tomorrow. His hope is in the Lord, period. You see, when we're in moments of distress, it is tempting to place our hope in things getting better, to place our hope in tomorrow. You know, we often say, it's okay, things will get better. 
Tomorrow will be better. And you know what? I get that. I totally understand that. But brothers and sisters, let's be honest with ourselves. We don't know if things will get better. We don't know if tomorrow will be better. What if it's not? If we put our hope in tomorrow and tomorrow is not better, we run the risk of plunging ourselves deeper and deeper into despair. Tomorrow is uncertain. Circumstances are uncertain. But God is certain. Put your trust in God and you will find for yourself an unchanging rock, an unchanging hope that can never be shaken. Now before we move on to verses 22 and 23, let me share with you a little bit about the structure of the book of Lamentations. Let's flip through the book. Or if you have a phone, you can scroll through the book. Notice that in chapter 1 of Lamentations, it has 22 verses. Chapter 2 has 22 verses. Chapter 3 has 66 verses, which is merely 22 verses three times. Chapters 4 and 5 have how many verses? 22. 22 each. That's because these chapters are written poetically in the form of an acrostic. An acrostic means that each verse starts with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and so there are 22 verses in each chapter. For instance, if we make an example from the English alphabet, chapter 1, verse 1, starts with the letter A. Chapter 1, verse 2, starts with the letter B. Chapter 1, verse 3, starts with the letter C. And D, E, F, until the alphabet runs out. And then chapter 2 starts all over again. Chapter 2, verse 1, starts with the letter A. Chapter 2, verse 2, starts with the letter B. And so on and so forth. Each chapter has 22 verses to match the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, why is this important? It's important because chapter 3, 22 and 23, are the very center of the book of Lamentations. This is the very center stanza, starting with verse 22, which means that the mercy of God is the very center of the book of Lamentations. The mercy of God is the heartbeat of the entire book. Darkness and despair begin and end the book, but the core, the midpoint, the heart of the book of Lamentations is the mercy of God. The Holy Spirit is trying to tell us something. Trying to tell us that when everything around you seems bleak, when everything around you is suffering and affliction that threatens to engulf you, God's faithfulness shines brightest. So in verse 22, at the very center of the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah says, the Lord's loving kindnesses never cease. And here he uses the covenant name of God, the Lord, Yahweh. When God made a covenant with Israel, he used this name, Yahweh, the Lord. Jeremiah says, Yahweh's loving kindnesses never cease. 
The word loving kindness is an absolutely beautiful Hebrew concept. It is the word chesed. Chesed is an all-encompassing word. It means something like this. The covenant God has a covenant love for his people that emphasizes faithfulness, truth, compassion, goodness, and kindness. All of that is rolled into this one single Hebrew word, chesed. Yahweh has pledged his steadfast commitment to his people in a covenant. It is a commitment born out of loyalty, faithfulness, joy, and affection. Yahweh's love and commitment never ceases. It never ceases because Yahweh never ceases. Yahweh is eternal. His compassions never fail because Yahweh never fails. Yahweh is unfailing. They go on forever because Yahweh goes on forever. He is who he is. The eternal God has an eternal love for his covenant people. And that eternal love is rooted in the attributes of God himself. Do you remember the story of the book of Job? Do you realize that through the entirety of the book, Job never finds out why he suffered? Just read it. We know that in chapters 1 and 2 of Job, Satan, of course, goes to God and asks permission from God to persecute Job, and God grants Satan permission. But Job never finds that out. Clear through the end of the book, Job still does not know why he suffered. The book of Job is not meant to portray some intricate, theologically complex answer to the problem of evil. The point of the book of Job is to trust God, who is worthy to be trusted. It is to trust God when you're suffering and you don't even understand why. It is to trust God because he is faithful and there is no shadow of turning with him. And just as God's loving kindnesses never cease, his compassions never fail. The word compassion is God's mercy, God's favor to those who are in misery or distress. And I love this. I just, I love this. His compassions are new every morning. Brethren, the fact that they are new every morning means that God has bestowed today's mercies for today's burdens. God has bestowed today's compassions for today's troubles. Every single morning when you wake up, every single morning when the dawn breaks, God has measured a specific amount of grace to you to match your trials for that day. So when you wake up each morning, you do not have to rely on grace from yesterday, grace from last week, grace from last month. No, the Lord has given you grace abundant specifically for today. It is not that grace from last week or yesterday's mercies are bad or deficient or stale or weak. No. It's just that yesterday's mercies were specifically for yesterday. And today's mercies 
are specifically for today. As the song lyrics say, every morning that breaks, there are mercies anew. When I've fallen and strayed, there are mercies anew. When the storms swirl and rage, there are mercies anew. God will bestow grace specifically for each moment of trial, no matter what moment that will be. He has a special mercy for each hour. Brethren, great is his faithfulness. God is faithful. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. He will not disappoint you. Great is his faithfulness. Thirdly, preach to yourself God as your portion. Preach to yourself God as your portion. Verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Now, that's odd. His soul is talking to him. Has Jeremiah gone crazy? Has all his suffering finally gotten to him? Does he have a split personality? His soul is talking to himself. No, Jeremiah has not gone crazy. Jeremiah is preaching truth to himself. That is, Jeremiah does not listen to himself. Jeremiah speaks to himself. He does not allow the dark parts of his heart to dominate his thinking. Instead, he takes the initiative. He preaches truth to himself. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. You bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. And he's absolutely right. We need to stand up when our own thoughts begin to overwhelm us. When our own thoughts begin to assail us. When our own thoughts begin to run out of control. We need to stand up and say, self, listen up. The Lord is your portion and nobody can take that away from you. Self, listen up. Yahweh's loving kindnesses never cease. His compassions never fail. Self, listen up. If God is for you, who can be against you? We need to preach truth to ourselves. Jeremiah preaches this to himself. The Lord is my portion. The word portion means inheritance, prize, reward. In the wake of the devastation, Jeremiah is not interested in monetary inheritance. He's not after earthly prizes or worldly rewards. No, he doesn't care about that at all. Jeremiah is after God. Jeremiah longs for God. Jeremiah yearns for God. God is my inheritance. God is my prize. God is my reward. The Lord is my portion. 
Let me just say this. Suffering puts everything in perspective. When you suffer, you realize earthly things can only go so far. A plot of land won't help. Money won't help. Cars won't help. Houses won't help. Neither will reputation, video games, golf, sex, movies, music, entertainment. Neither will alcohol, drugs, cigarettes, medication. Even chocolate doesn't satisfy forever. Nothing will satisfy you in suffering like God. He must be your portion. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Psalm 63, verse 4, The loving kindness of the Lord is better than life. There is nothing on earth, there is nothing in heaven better than the Lord himself. Nothing will satisfy you in your suffering like God. God is enough to satisfy you. Jeremiah says, therefore I have hope in him. The hopeless man has found hope once again. The depressed man has found joy once again. All because he preaches to himself, the Lord is my portion. Sir Norman Anderson, former professor and director of the Advanced Legal Institute at London University, supported International Fellowship of Evangelical Students for 60 years. He was a Christian. He had lost all three of his children in their early adult life. And his wife became so demented, she could not even recognize him anymore. At one of his last public events where he spoke, he was asked, when you look back over your life and reflect on the fact that you have lost all three of your children and how your wife of 60 years no longer recognizes you, do you ever ask the question, why me? He responded, no, I have never asked that question, why me? But I have asked the question, why not me? I am not promised as a Christian that I will escape the problems encountered by others. We all live in a fallen world. I am, however, promised that in the midst of difficulties, God, through Christ, will be present with me and will give his grace to help me cope with the difficulties and bear witness to him. That's it, brothers and sisters. That is it. That's it. I am promised that in the midst of difficulties, God, through Christ, will be present with me. God is with you. God is your portion. This is your reward. God himself. So preach to yourself, God as your, portion, as your portion, and the hopeless one will find hope once again. Fourth and last way to meet God in the midst of affliction is to wait for God who is good to those who seek him. Verse 25. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. What does it mean to wait for God? 
Well, the prophet gives us a very important clue for what it means to wait for God and is found in this very verse. The most important defining quality of Hebrew poetry is called poetic parallelism. Hebrew poems don't rhyme like English poems. Instead, the dominant feature of Hebrew poetry is the fact that two lines state parallel truths. Often the second line explains the first line. And so here we have those who wait for him is parallel to the person who seeks him. Together they mean that we are to look for, to search, to long for. It carries with it the idea of eager expectancy and intense anticipation. For instance, let us say that your spouse has been away for a long time and you're going to pick up your spouse at the airport. And as you're waiting for your spouse, you don't sit back and lazily just fall asleep. Of course not. You sit up. Or perhaps you even stand. And you are looking with eager expectancy. You stretch your neck. You crane your neck to see if you can see your spouse emerging from the gate. That's the idea. That's the idea right here. To wait for God is to search for him, to seek him expectantly, eagerly, to crane your neck and to watch God coming to meet you. Rest assured, brethren, he is good to those who wait for him. Psalm 64, verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who works for those who wait for him. God is good to those who seek him. If you call upon the name of the Lord, he will come to meet you. But brothers and sisters, he will come to meet you in his own time and in his own way. For instance, how many times were Jesus' disciples caught in the boat in the middle of a storm? Twice. Twice. In Mark 4, Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat, and his disciples go to him, and they wake him up, and they say, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus says to the storm, hush, be still. And the storm stopped. The other time, Matthew 14, Jesus was not in the boat. He was up on a mountain praying, and he comes to them through the storm, walking on the sea. The point is that sometimes in life, we find ourselves in the boat, being rocked by the storm, being blown and tossed by every wind of affliction. And sometimes, when we wait for the Lord, when we wait for Jesus, Jesus comes and he says to the storm in our life, hush, be still. And everything becomes calm. The storm is gone. And your suffering stops. Sometimes Jesus calms the storm. But not always. At other times, waiting for Jesus means that Jesus lets the storm rage. He lets the winds howl but he uses the storm as a means of coming to meet you. He walks through the storm as a means of meeting you. 
He uses the storm to show that God can meet us in the most powerful and most unlikely of ways. Oh, Christian, God has not left you to suffer by yourself. He is coming to meet you. Are you waiting for him? John Patton was a Scottish missionary about 125 years ago on the island of Tana in the New Hebrides, the South Pacific. After his family died, he was left alone on that island, and he served by himself for four years with only two converts. One day, the whole island took up machetes and spears to try to kill him. And Patton had only one way of escape. He asked one of his two converts to help him. The Christian told Patton to climb into a tree while he distracted the tribe so that Patton could escape. This is what Patton wrote about his experience in that tree. Listen to these words. I climbed into the tree and was left alone in the bush. The hours I spent there live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when the moonlight flickered among these chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone, if it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's presence, to feel his consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? If you're not a believer here this morning, you have no rock to stand upon in your suffering. I urge you to call upon the Lord at a time where he may be found. I urge you to call upon Christ and be saved from your sins because only in him will you have a friend who will not fail you then. And oh, believers, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, as we close our time this morning, can I just speak to you from the heart for a moment? Just from my heart to your heart. This isn't preaching. This is just the heart of a shepherd to your heart. Can you just do me a favor? Do me a favor. I don't really care if you remember me. I don't care if you remember my face or my voice. You'll probably forget me. I'm totally fine with that. I'm not offended by that at all. But do me a favor. Whatever you do, do not forget this passage. Do not forget the heartbeat of lamentations. Whatever you do, do not forget the truth 
of the heartbeat of lamentations. Tonight, tomorrow, next week, next year, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, when you suffer, and we will all suffer, do not forget this passage. Remember it, read it, know it, taste it, trust it. God is good to those who seek him, and he meets those in the midst of affliction. Will you listen one last time as I read it to you? This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we trust that we are all here by divine appointment, that every single person sitting in this room here this morning, that every single person who can hear the sound of my voice and who can hear this word from you is here by divine appointment, that even from eternity past, that even before the world was made, that even before any of us were born, you knew that we would be here this morning. And so we pray that you would come, that you would minister to each heart, that those who do not know you would cry out to the name of the Lord to be saved, that those who are in prayerless stupors, that need to be shaken out of their comfortable lives, would call upon you, and that those who are suffering would know a nearness unlike any other until this very moment. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.